This is episode eight of The Investor's Podcast. Broadcasting from Bel Air, Maryland, this is The Investor's Podcast. They'll take complex things and make them seem insanely simple. They make your boring drive to work feel exhilarating. They give you actionable investing strategies. Your host, Preston Pish and Stig Broderson. All right. Uh, how's everybody doing today? This is Preston Pish, and I'm accompanied by my co-host, Stig Broderson. And today we have brought on a guest of ours that we have been interacting with for the last uh, couple weeks, and his name is Kalen Yablonski. And so Kalen and Stig and myself have been interacting because Kalen is a search engine optimization expert, and he owns his own company called Inbound Interactive up in Calgary, Canada. And uh, Kalen has uh, gone through our Buffett's Books course and uh, has read a couple of our books. And Kalen started asking us a couple questions whenever we were interacting with some of our interests, which were search engine optimization. And Kalen's questions were so good that Stig and I were like, we need to bring this guy on the show because he has got some fantastic questions. And we think that they're questions that a lot of people in our audience would really benefit from. So uh, I'm going to go ahead and introduce Kalen. And what he's going to do is he's going to take control of this show right now and he's going to run it. And he's going to be asking Stig and I questions. And so the roles are reversed today. And I hope everybody enjoys this. So uh, Kalen, go ahead and take it, introduce yourself, and then uh, you can start with your questions. Sure. So thanks a lot, Preston and Stig. Uh, digital marketing certainly is a good bartering chip for getting your investing questions answered. So, <laughs> so uh, like Preston said, uh, I'm from Calgary, Alberta, Canada. I'm the founder of a small digital marketing company called Inbound Interactive. But more specific to today's show, I guess you could call me a value investor in training. And so I got started in value investing probably six months ago, something like that. And it was through just having conversations with my friends, my family, my colleagues about the stock market. And their sentiment seemed to be that the stock market was very risky. It was unpredictable. It was essentially gambling with your money. And that was a belief that I actually held for a really long time as well. And so one day I was kind of Googling something. I think it was related to pillars of investing or rules for investing. And I stumbled across a video by two really smart guys, which was the, the Buffett books. I think it was number 17, the four rules for Warren uh, Buffett investing. And from there, I just dove right in. And it's been about, yeah, like I said, six months now of reading books, watching video series, and hopefully trying to get a handle on, uh, on how to do this correctly. So, I have a couple of questions here I'm really excited about. Um, the first one is for someone who's just getting started with investing, and let's imagine that you have, say, ten to $25,000, where would you suggest that a person starts? Um, you know, there are a lot of options such as mutual funds, index funds, common stocks, bonds. Where would you suggest that, that a person gets started? So, Kalen, uh, really good question. So, I think that for a lot of people, whenever they start out, they're a little hesitant to just dive into an individual stock pick. Um, there's, and to be honest, there's a lot of risk in investing in an individual stock pick because if one thing goes wrong for that particular company, and let's say you put $10,000 into that pick, you could potentially lose a very large portion of that principal. So, I'd like to tell people that are just starting out that they should go with an index fund. 
Okay, and the big debate then becomes, do I go with an index fund or do I go with a mutual fund? So many people, especially in the past 10 to 20 years, have all kind of used mutual funds. And the reason that people use mutual funds is because there's somebody that's actively managing the fund. And so psychologically, you think, well, somebody who's managing it is obviously going to be doing better than somebody who isn't managing a fund and it's just going straight off of an index. But here's what's interesting, and a lot of people don't realize this. 84% of actively managed mutual funds did worse than their index. Okay, And that was from a, a, a stat from 2011 that U.S. News Report did. Um, and it's just it's quite fascinating when you think about that. But the reason, and I think if you had to attribute the reason why mutual funds perform worse than an index fund is because people, when, when you're a manager and you're investing other people's money, people tend to give you the money at the exact wrong time. Okay, so if I'm a mutual fund manager and let's say the stock market is really climbing and doing well, there's a bunch of people giving me more and more money to invest. And unfortunately, as people who understand value investing really well uh, know, is that when I get that money at the wrong time, I'm actually having a harder time investing it and getting a better return. And then whenever the market would collapse, they're trying to pull their money out. And that's whenever I need the money as a manager in order to be buying it at a cheap price. And so what happens is, is this money manager, he's moving things around. And a lot of the times, uh, so they're paid through their transaction fees and their transaction costs on a lot of these mutual funds. And so the turnover is actually good for them because they're actually making more money. And I think that those are some of the main reasons why you actually see a mutual fund perform worse than an index. So, uh, and sorry that this this answer is kind of long, but this is a really important question. And this is something that I think is probably going to relate to people probably the most out of all your questions. So then the next question becomes, which index is it that I buy out of the ones out there? So in our show notes, um, we're going to have a link that goes to a U.S. News report that they did on the 25 best indexes. Uh, and there'll, there'll be a link. You just click on that link and it'll take you there. And the reason I really like this uh, report that U.S. News did is because what they did is they broke down index funds specifically and ranked them uh, from, from best to worst. Okay, and they used four factors in order to to determine that criteria of how they selected the number one index and the number two index. How they factored this in is they broke it down into first the expense ratio. So how much are you paying in order to be in that index? So back in the day, whenever mutual funds were really popular, you might pay one to two percent or even higher in order to be a part of that fund. Well, that's an enormous cost for people, and we have stats on that on Buffett's books that kind of shows how much that cost actually adds up to in, in a long term. But with index funds, that that rate, that cost, that expense ratio to be in, in the index is extraordinarily low. So like the, one of the indexes that I own, the expense ratio is 0.07%. Okay, that's not 7%. That's 0.07%. It's extremely low. So in this, uh, back to the point that I was trying to make. So there's four criteria that they used in this U.S. News report where they were picking the, basically the top 25 indexes. So the first thing that they weight is the expense ratio. The next thing that they that they rate is the tracking error. Okay, how close does that index uh, come? If say you're buying an index for the S and P 500, how close does it actually come to to matching the performance of the S and P 500? So that's the next criteria that they used in order to determine that. 
The next thing that they used was a bid-ask ratio. Okay, and what the bid-ask ratio is, is it measures the spread between the bid and ask prices of different various ETFs or indexes. Now, that might have sounded really confusing, okay? So how is that important? And it's important in this regard. If you have a fund that has a very large uh, gap between its bid to ask ratio and it doesn't have a lot of volume, you could potentially get hurt whenever you try to sell that ETF. So this is a really important factor. A lot of people don't even realize that something like this exists, but this is something that's captured in this report that we have the link to on our show notes. And then the last criteria is the diversification factor. Let's say that you go to an index by, uh, let's say, Fidelity. And I don't even know if Fidelity's index would be like this, but I'm just going to use that as an example. Whenever you would buy that index, which is being managed or, or being set up by Fidelity, they might have too much diversified money into, let's say, Apple. Maybe Apple is 10% of the portfolio and maybe uh, you know the next pick might be GE and maybe it's a large chunk of it. So whenever it's offset that diversification inside of that index, you're not going to have a return that matches the uh, actual performance of, let's call it the S&P 500. So that diversification factor is also played into this uh, top four criteria that they're using for this U.S. News report. So really long answer. I'm sorry that it, that I took so long. I might have uh, maybe lost some people in there. But I think the important thing is, is for a first-time investor who's maybe not comfortable with just picking one individual stock pick, it might be good for you to get your feet wet, get into the uh, get into the market by investing in an index. And what you're doing is you're spreading your money across many companies. It could be up to 500 or 1,000 companies across that index, and you're not having a very high expense ratio. So Preston, I have one follow-up question. Considering that an index fund is just a collection of common stock, can you use common value investing techniques such as looking at a P.E. ratio to find out whether an index fund is overpriced or underpriced? So the answer to that is absolutely. Um, Whenever you're trying to value an index, it's actually a little bit easier, in my opinion, than individual stocks. And the reason that it's easier is you can take the P.E. ratio, which is the price that you pay compared to the profit that the overall index as a whole is producing. So let's say that uh, you know the, the the PE ratio for a current pick would be a twenty, or for uh, the index would be a twenty. So that means you're paying twenty dollars right now in order to get one dollar of profit out of that entire index. Okay, so when you're trying to to figure out what would be my yield or my return on that, the easiest way to figure it out is just take one divided by that PE ratio, which in this case would be twenty. So one divided by twenty gives you a five percent return. So that's how I'm constantly reassessing the value of an index over time as I'm constantly reassessing where that P.E. ratio is at in order to determine what kind of yield I think I'd get from it. Yeah, and uh, if I can add something, I would definitely also say that another value investing principle is really understanding what it is you're buying. And you might think that if you're buying something like S&P 500, well, that's just a lot of companies. Or if you're buying an index mirroring Dow Jones, well, that's also just a lot of companies. But try also to think about which companies is it actually that you are buying. Because to a lot of these indexes, it actually requires quite a lot to be a part of. For instance, if you look at the S&P 500, uh, this is the 500 biggest companies in the U.S. And it's actually not that easy to be a part of that. So you have 500 fantastic companies. Well, there might be some 
companies that are not performing as well, but you know that these companies prob- probably have very good uh, business models. So that will also give you some kind of security for the long run. Great. Okay. So moving on to the next question that I had, um, we recently had the opportunity to discuss the concept of dollar cost averaging as an investment technique. So the philosophy behind dollar cost averaging is really practical. However, what if a person is starting with a relatively large amount of capital, say $100,000 plus? Do they structure their payment plan so that it's $10,000 per month over the course of, say, 10 months, knowing that a large portion of their capital will be out of the market during that period of time? Or would you recommend they, they front load their investment with, say, twenty-five dollars or $50,000? Uh, you know, what is the best way to go about that? I think that to uh, reiterate what Preston said before, I think it's very important that you get your feet wet in the beginning. So say that you have something like $100,000. I would probably just start out by spending two, three, perhaps $5,000 uh, buying an index. And then I would see what my stomach will do the first time that the stock market took a dip. I think that would be my, my first advice. Simply to see how I would react. Because it wouldn't make any sense to, to say, well, you should front load it or do something when it turns out that you can't handle the emotions. So I think that would definitely be my first advice. Uh, and then I would probably also be looking at the price to earnings uh, ratio. Um, th- I, okay, so I'm gonna just going to step back because the reason why you want to use the dollar cost average uh, pros is because you don't want to look too much into whether or not the stock market is overpriced or if it's underpriced. Uh, you just want to have the average outcome. But in any way, even if you're a beginning investor, it is still possible to look at the PE for that common index. And if you're looking at something like a PE of 20 or 25, then you probably shouldn't pour all of your cash into uh, the stock market right away. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. The dream of owning a vacation home can be daunting. From finding the best guests, to the maintenance, to organizing the cleaners after every guest day. With Vacasa, they make that dream into a reality. As a full-service vacation home management company with vacation homes in key destinations across the U.S., they know how to make owning a vacation home easy and profitable. On top of proactive property maintenance visits by professional local teams, a data-driven booking platform, and around-the-clock support, homeowners earn on average 20% or more revenue from their vacation homes. Vacasa makes vacation home ownership easy. If you're looking to make more from your vacation home by doing less, partner with Vacasa at vacasa.com. That's vacasa.com to get started on your dream of owning a vacation home. Have you ever wondered if there's an AI tool like ChatGBT specifically built for the stock market? A tool that not only aids you in your research and analysis process, but also allows for dynamic discussions? Today, I want to share such a tool with you called Meka. Meka is the AI-powered stock research assistant now enhanced with real-time stock data. Meka does a lot of the heavy lifting of sifting through financial statements and company data and delivers it to you nearly instantaneously, and the best part is that it's 100% free. Try it out today and ask Meka questions like, what is the financial health of Microsoft? How much cash does Copart hold on its balance sheet? What is the return on invested capital of Adobe or millions of other prompts? 
Check it out today for free at Meka.com. That's M-E-Y-K-A.com. Today's episode is sponsored by Range Rover Sport. Range Rover Sport leads by example with their dynamic design that rises to the occasion. It's got powerful on-road performance and commanding all-terrain capabilities, coupled with signature Range Rover refinement. The third-generation Range Rover Sport is the most desirable, advanced, and dynamically capable one yet, redefining sporting luxury. It's got advanced cabin technologies such as active noise cancellation and cabin air purification offering next-level comfort and refinement. The purposeful cockpit-like driving position sets the tone for a focused interior that promotes exhilarating driver engagement. Award-winning Pivi Pro infotainment is at the heart of the experience and provides intuitive control of the vehicle systems. You can enjoy a dynamic drive and total comfort with optional 22-way adjustable heated and ventilated electric memory front seats with massage function. Design your Range Rover Sport at LandRoverUSA.com. That's LandRoverUSA.com. All right, back to the show. So Stig had a very insightful uh, answer, and I think his answer was probably better than my answer for a first-time investor um, in that you have to know how you're going to be able to stomach um, that psychological loss, even though it's not an actual loss until you would sell and it materializes and it actualizes. Um, for people to see their account go down by a very large sum of money, they might not be able to handle that and they might sell in that situation. And if that's how you are and that's uh, and you know that you might react that way, Stig's advice of maybe just investing a little bit of money to see how you can kind of handle the, the roller coaster ride is probably the best advice that you can receive. Now, if you are the type of person that this would not phase you in the least bit and it wouldn't upset you or you wouldn't psychologically get attached to this, emotionally attached to this, then I would tell you a different answer. And the answer that I would tell you is that you can only make decisions with your money in time now. Okay, so investing is completely relative um, to the opportunities that exist right now. And the thing that I would ask myself is, do you want $100,000 today or do you want $100,000 spread over the next year? And my answer is I want $100,000 today. And the reason I want it today is because I don't want to wait and let let's call it $900,000 sit until the next month. Because whenever I do that and I keep a cash position, what I'm actually choosing, okay, whether I know it or not, what I'm actually choosing is to take a negative 2 or negative 3% return because that's what, inf- that's what inflation will do to your money, okay, annually. So for me, even though I might not be real happy, and right now in November of 2014, the market, you know, when I look at the PE ratio, it's almost approaching a, a 20 for the market. So I know my return's probably around a 5% return if I would invest in an index. I'm not real happy with that return. I don't like 5%. I like more than 5%. Okay. But those are the options that I have based in relative terms because my opportunity cost of putting it into a fixed income investment is. 2%, a little over 2%. And then a fixed income investment is completely impacted by inflation. So let's call that another negative 2% off of that for a 0% return if I'm in fixed income investments. Okay. And I'm comparing that 0% return to the 5% I could get in the index. So for me, it's an easy decision. I take the $100,000, I drop it into an index, or I invest it into a stock that I feel might give me a better return than the index that's low risk, which I feel that there are stocks out there that would give me that. And that's where I put the $100,000. 
but I am comfortable seeing the principle of my investment go down. If it went down to $50,000 tomorrow, I wouldn't blink an eye. That wouldn't bother me in the least bit. And I would just buy more of the same stock that I just bought the previous day. So it really comes down to what can you handle as an investor? What are you comfortable with? And that takes time. You have to be in the market for, for decades in order to get that experience and get that comfort level in order to invest like that. So kind of a, a different uh, you know, opinion or different guidance, depending on where you're at and what your stomach can handle. You know, Preston, I'm going to jump to, to one of the questions that I had later on in, uh, in this process, because both you and Stig talked about something that I think is so critical to the investing process, and that's the emotional, psychological components. Um, because personally, when I went to make my first stock purchase, and you're sitting at your computer, you know, it's quiet, you see this screen and it's kind of flickering in the background and you're about to purchase, say, two or 3,000 shares of a company. And you feel, as a new investor, personally, I felt like I had this huge rock in my stomach and it almost got to the point where it was nauseating, where I was like, I cannot believe I'm going to just throw, say, ten, twenty-five thousand dollars $25,000 at a company that I have literally no control over. So, I guess my question is, is what is the last thing that goes through your mind when you go to make a stock purchase? Okay. So I've got to answer this in different phases because the Preston today thinks completely different than the way I thought whenever I was a first time investor, you know, many years ago. And so whenever I first started out and I didn't really know that much, I know exactly that feeling that you're talking about, that fear and that unknown, like, oh my God, this thing could, I could lose half the value tomorrow. And you know what that really stemmed from is I just didn't really know what I was doing. I was investing in companies and I, I had no idea what was behind that company itself. I had no idea what kind of debt levels the company had. I didn't know what their earnings were. None of that stuff made any sense to me. And so whenever I started developing more knowledge and I started understanding what it is that was behind that stock, the equity of, of owning a business and really kind of understanding that piece of it, that's whenever things kind of started making a turn and it started being a whole lot easier for me to pull the trigger on a $5,000, $10,000 purchase. And so here's the thing that I think about now. So that, that's where I was years ago as a young investor and really didn't have the knowledge. But now that I feel like I really understand what I'm doing and kind of look at things in a completely different light. The question I ask myself whenever I do pull the trigger on a new purchase is, was I the smart person or the dumb person on that deal? Okay, that's what I really ask myself. And did I just do the opposite of the typical investor? That's what I'm asking myself. Because at the end of every single transaction, whenever you're buying equity, there's a buyer and there's a seller. And so there's a person who thought that the, the equity was a great deal or the stock purchase was a great deal. And then there's a person who thought, oh, this isn't something I want to own anymore. This was a bad purchase, so I'm going to sell it. Or I've made a lot of gains and I don't think it's going to go much further, so I'm going to sell it. So which of those two people am I? And that's the question I always ask myself after I make a purchase. Am I buying the equity at a good price from a person who doesn't know the real value? Or am I the person who's selling it and I don't know the real value because there's somebody buying my, each one of my sales as well, which I don't do a lot of. I don't sell a lot. What about you, Stig? Um, I gotta be honest with you, Kate. I don't, I don't have the same advanced thought process <laughs> as you at Preston. <laughs> um, I think that in the beginning, uh, well, I know that in the beginning, 
I had the same, you know, same feeling in my stomach. Um, I don't know. It probably also helped me that I used to play poker. <laughs> no, all kidding aside, uh, I think it was a really, really insightful question. Um, I think that as long as you're doing your, uh, your research and as long as you have a long-term um, time horizon to, to be looking at, I think that you'll be doing quite well. Uh, but unle- unless that's what we're talking about, I actually don't have the same, um, I, I don't think I have the fear anymore. Uh, perhaps I should. so basically suck it up and make some stock picks well i i think that if you're not comfortable you should never buy anything you should not make that decision you have to be comfortable and what's your intuition telling you if your intuition's like oh boy oh no i I don't know what to then you shouldn't be doing that i mean why put yourself through that um but i i really think the key to all of this uh is really the knowledge piece as soon as you become more knowledgeable and you study the art of asset selection and and asset valuation. Whenever you understand that and you and you really study it, the the fear factor really kind of goes away real quickly. Because I know whenever I buy a certain stock pick and I'm looking at it, I was like, okay, what are all the things that could go wrong? Okay, and whenever I look at that and I feel that the upside drastically outweighs anything that could go wrong, I'm very comfortable going in and there and, and making a stock pick. And you know what? If the stock market doesn't agree with my opinion and it and it penalizes it by 25% the very next day, like I said, hey, great, I'm buying more of it because my opinion of why I purchased it in the first place hasn't changed. Yeah, and I think one of the challenges for new investors is that in most cases, we have such a short-term horizon that we're comparing our stock picks against. So, you know, it's really interesting for a person like me to look back at, say, 2008 and see what was happening to the market because I, in all honesty, was not aware that the stock market was reacting in that way. It just was not on my radar at that point in time. Um, And and I completely agree. I I think there's a a Warren Buffett quote that, that sums this up perfectly, and it's that risk comes from not knowing what you're doing. And that's exactly how, you know, I think a new investor feels is that, you know, even though you've gone through the valuation process and you found the intrinsic value of your company and they have low debt to equity, um, you still feel a little unsure and it it seems like risk. Oh, yeah, definitely. And as you're saying, uh, history really repeats itself. So if you're a new investor, I would definitely suggest that you would check out the, uh, the returns that Warren Buffett had. Uh, the last, I think it's 49 years since he bought Berkshire Hathaway, something like that, and see that in some years he lost, you know, 30% or something like that. And in a lot of years, he did much worse than the, uh, the, the S&P 500. Um, so as you're saying, it probably comes from having a, a very short-term uh, perspective uh, very, very often when you have this fear. Yeah. Because if you know what you're doing, um, then you'll do fine over time. And that time might be a lot of, like 10 years or 20 years, but you will do fine over time. Yeah. And I think that that's a big factor is I know whenever I make any investment decision when I'm buying stock, it's always a very long term for, you know, for my lifetime type decision. I don't plan on ever selling it. So uh, I think that makes a a, a lot easier, too, is whenever you buy it and you know that you're planning on owning it forever. If it goes down tomorrow or the next month, it's no big deal. I'm trying to buy more equity at that point. So and just to kind of piggyback off of what Stig had said about Warren Buffett. Yeah, he had some horrible years relative to the market. 
But when you look at his performance over that 40-year period, his average return is a 20% return annually, which you know crushes the stock market. So his guidance and his principles obviously work because he's been doing it for a very long extended period of time and has uh, results that, that prove that. Okay, so the, the next question that I had for you, and, and this is along the same line as, as what we've been talking about already, but another quote that I really love from Warren Buffett is, be fearful when others are greedy and greedy when others are fearful. And it seems simple enough. However, how should a new investor react to financial news? For example, the apparent global supply glut of oil and how major institutions such as Goldman Sachs have slashed its 2015 forecast. That one's popular up in Calgary, I bet. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's very popular. Everybody is shaking in their boots downtown. <laughs> well, I'd say that you really have to be thinking about um, what, you're, what you're hearing. Is that a permanent change or is it a temporary change? And if something that's permanent, you should definitely take it seriously. But if it's temporary, well, clearly, on the other hand, you should just say, well, a price fluctuation will just happen. So this is uh, this is something that I actually this is very ironic question because this week I actually made a very large change in my portfolio with respect to oil, and um, so to go to your question when you're saying am I fearful or is it just noise? And I think that that's really kind of the thing that people got to understand. Whenever you talk about statistics, there's a lot of noise in the numbers. There's a there's a famous statistician that uh, I follow very closely. His name is uh, Nate Silver, and what Nate has done, uh, he's a he's a statistician's genius, and he was able to correctly forecast the uh, presidential elections and these midterm elections for years now. And it's funny because all these news networks follow him extremely closely because his his selection rate is that out of all the counties across the whole United States, he might miss call only three counties in the whole United States, which is just massive. So his model that he's using, he's able to pick out what's the essence of what gets a person, you know, the forecast of getting a person elected versus just noise. Because in the stock market, whether it's it's politics or it's the stock market, there's a lot of noise. Most of it's noise, 95 percent of it's noise. But sometimes there's that five percent where it's actually the essence of something that's changing in the way things are, are moving. So with respect to oil, I've owned oil in my portfolio for a very long time. I know back in 08, I purchased Chevron, Royal Dutch Shell, quite a few picks that were paying very high dividends. I reaped the benefits of that for years now, about six years that I was reaping the benefits of that. And literally this week, I actually sold out of my oil positions. Um, I hated paying the capital gains, but for me, there was a major shift, and I'm st- and I personally think I might be wrong, but I think that there's a major shift in the direction that oil's going, and I think that there's a lot more supply. And whenever you look at charts, um, and we'll have something in the show notes pr- pertaining to this uh, article that I read by a guy named Ben Castleman, who's also a reporter for the 538 website where Silverman has his, uh, his stats. But on this website, the uh, name of the article was, The Law of Supply and Demand Suddenly Applies to Oil Too. And he has charts in this article that shows the oil production in Saudi Arabia and the oil production in the United States. And whenever you go back to like 2004, you can see kind of those levels at what they're producing oil at. And if you look now in in 2014, you're seeing a drastic shift in the amount of oil and, and 
oil equivalents that are being energy equivalents that are being produced out of the United States to the point where it's more than double where it was over a decade ago, whereas Saudi Arabia is very slowly ramping up their efforts. So my personal opinion with this specific question is that we're seeing a change in the supply and demand of oil. And for that reason, that's why I am moving out. It's not because maybe they missed their their quarterly earnings by 10 cents or the noise is what I'd like to call it. But I feel like there's a fundamental shift in the production levels of oil. And that's why I had moved out of it. So I think whenever you're answering your question, uh, Kalen, you've really got to be able to delineate what is noise and what is the truth and what is the essence of maybe something that's happening right now? I personally think that there's kind of a transition where uh, when there's more competition and there's more demand in the market, the prices are going to go down and you might not have as good of performance. So that's why I slowly transitioned out of that position. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Kyle, you're connected with a ton of different investors and portfolio managers, and you're just really in the know on a lot of these things. How do you keep up with all the day-to-day headlines for your portfolio companies? Yeah, so I used to have a ton of issues with this, and that was until I started using Yahoo Finance. Really? What's so great about it? So Yahoo Finance is awesome. I have my whole portfolio entered, and I can easily see all the top headlines to keep up with the recent news, and each day you get an overview of the major global events that might be moving the market, so I'm ready to easily pounce on any opportunities that come my way. What else can you do on Yahoo Finance's platform? They also have a number of cool features, including a tool that lets you link all of your investment accounts, analyst ratings, and independent research, as well as the ability to create customized charts. Well, now I know that the audience is really going to love this one. And I actually see they have 90 million monthly active users. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com. The number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. If you're looking for the right franchise concept at the right time, an iFlex Stretch Studio franchise is the business for you. iFlex is the newest franchise concept from the founders of the Joint Chiropractic. With over 200 licenses already awarded to our regional developers, there's never been a better time to own an iFlex franchise in your market. An iFlex Stretch Studio franchise offers its clients the best in professional-assisted stretching for one affordable price in one beautiful location. Even the Mayo Clinic says stretching can increase flexibility and improve your joint's range of motion, helping you move more freely. Prime regional developer opportunities and franchise locations are going fast. Don't miss this opportunity to get into this rapidly growing health and wellness business from the founders of The Joint Chiropractic. Find out more today. Call 888-994-3500. 539 or visit iflexpodcast.com. Call right now, 888-994-3539 or visit iflexpodcast.com. As many of you know, I love studying businesses and networking with business owners. The more I've studied businesses, the more I've realized that starting and scaling your business is easier than ever because of companies like Shopify. Did you know that Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S.? Shopify is the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business, from their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. 
Shopify even helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms. What I personally love about Shopify is that it's the turnkey solution to kickstart and grow your business, and they are totally committed to giving you the necessary tools to succeed as a business owner. Plus, they have an award-winning customer support team there to help you every step of the way. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash WSB. That's all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash WSB now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. That's shopify.com slash WSB. All right, back to the show. Wow, that was really... uh Really insightful answer, Preston. Um, let let's do this to let's make this a calgary special. <laughs> I really <laughs> like to talk about the I like to talk about oil. Uh, I definitely think that you are right, Preston. I think that we see uh, some kind of I wouldn't call it a permanent shift, but we definitely see some kind of a shift because clearly, if we have a lot of supply and we have the whole shale boom and everything, so clearly, uh, due to the law of supply and demand, that would drive down the price. I gotta say I'm not that I'm not that worried, but I also think it depends on where you're invested in the in the oil industry because the oil industry, oil and gas industry, is such a large sector. So you really need to to understand what it is that you are uh, investing in. But clearly, if if you're uh, investing in companies that is very dependent on oil price, like right now, um, I def I think that you might uh, be hurt in the next few years. I think that the uh, at least my strategy and something that I would like to pass on is you might want to consider investing in companies that is delivering services or delivering tools for these companies to exploit oil because that's never going to change. That's not going to change in the next 100 years. So if when you have a sector that is very profitable and the oil, oil uh, industry will still be profitable at the current level, um, and you have, uh, and they have a moat. They have something that they can do in the industry that is very big and, and might be competitive, but they still have a competitive advantage. I'm pretty sure you you get uh, decent returns uh, for many many years to come. So um, I don't know if that would calm you down, Kaylin, um, <laughs> <laughs> or not. Yeah, well, it snowed here very heavily last night, so I think regardless of what happens with oil, the Calgarians are going to be shaking in their boots. So. <laughs> Kaylin, I want to add another point here. So whenever I was looking at the current uh, performance that I kind of expected out of the the picks that I had, these oil picks that I had, I found the performance to be very close, if not exactly the same as what I would get out of like an S&P 500 index. And so why would I assume risk in owning one of these individual picks that are highly exposed to that particular industry whenever I could transition that capital into something that ha- that's across the breadth of an index or another pick that I feel would give me a better return, that opportunity cost trade-off that you're constantly doing? And that was one of the main reasons that I had transitioned because I felt like my opportunity cost in another area was much higher than where it was in oil. And that's why I transitioned out. Uh, okay, so... My next question is just, I work a full-time job, um, and obviously, once you come home from work, you want to spend time with your family, maybe you're going to cook dinner, and so you don't have a lot of free time necessarily to dedicate to, say, monitoring your portfolio or investing uh, or investigating stock picks. So typically, how much time is a value investor going to need to 
invest in themselves and in the process to see a return um, on the stock market. So this is a question that I get a lot of the time. And I think my answer kind of surprises a lot of people because they probably anticipate me to say, oh, yeah, well, you got to look at it every day. I spend three hours a day researching and stuff like that. But really, the, the way I see it is a person should really focus on the quarterly results and look at the, the, the 10 Q. Um, so really, that's that's once every three months. That's where I would focus a lot of my time and energy is reviewing that for the companies that I specifically own. Now, from a day-to-day basis, um, I might not even look at the tickers on a day-to-day basis. I might look at that maybe once a week, twice a week, just to kind of see where things are at and what they're doing. Uh, but what I do uh, a lot of is read the news. So um, if it's a if it's a company, if it's an industry, I will be reading that just to kind of see, just to kind of ha- know what's going on. Um, does it necessarily relate to the business that I particularly own? Maybe not. Um, but the thing that I think a lot of people neglect is, you know, whenever they publish their quarterly results, what has changed from that to the next day, re- specifically for that company? Really nothing. Okay. You don't know until the next quarter's uh, earnings report uh, that comes out when you see the income statement, balance sheet, and cash flow statement. Not for another three months. So um, what do you know that you didn't know the day before that you really have to be looking at and doing a lot of research on? And so what I would propose is that a lot of people probably need to look at it maybe a little less than what they're than they're anticipating. Um, but when they do get that new report, they do need to read that. They do need to understand what's in it and what the direction of the company's going towards. I'd say that if you had to prioritize your time and we all had to do that, I would definitely spend much more time improving my general um, investing skills than spending time on watching, I wouldn't say necessarily the news, but just you know reading all these different reports and all these rumors about the companies that you're looking at. I definitely agree with Preston. Uh, the 10 Qs, that's really the key because then you read the results from the last quarter, uh, you hear what the management has to say, and then you should use the investing skills that you acquired to separate the noise from the reality. Um, and when you do that, I think you're good to go. So that's a fan, uh, Stig, that's a fantastic answer. If people would spend an hour a day learning more about accounting and learning more about their investment knowledge, opposed to reading an hour's worth of news on, on the noise, if we will, <laughs> I think you would see people really have a lot more success than, uh, than the person who's just watching Squawk Box all day and, and getting worried because they're hearing some person's, some random person's opinion. Okay, and this is the last question that I had for the the two of you. And it's one that I am very interested in learning your answer to. It's if you could go back in time to when you first started learning about value investing, what single piece of advice would you give to your former self? I'd definitely say don't swing in every pitch. I think that is probably probably the best advice. Uh, When I started out, I was very anxious and I was definitely not a big fan of the dollar cost everything method. I really just want to get into the stock market because the sooner I got into the stock market, the sooner I thought I could, you know, reap the benefits. Um, so whenever I found like a good stock pick or what seems to be a, seemed to be a stu- good stock pick, I would just go ahead and buy it. And that is a very, very, very bad um, advice. So I would say, um, I think it was actually Greg Pisani, which we had on a few weeks ago. He said, that the best investment advice he ever got was patience. And that's really what this don't swing the repeats is. You don't have to you don't have to buy a stock every month. 
or you don't have to buy a stock every year even. You should just wait until you find a really good company at a really good price and then go into that stock. I think that is the advice I would like to give myself. So I'm going to cheat. Um, I know you said only one piece of investment advice, but I'm, I would actually give myself two pieces of investment advice. <laughs> I needed a lot of help. So. <laughs> All right. So the first thing I tell myself is find people that are the best at what they do, people that you admire and study them until you understand the essence of their decision making process. Okay. That's the first thing I tell myself. And then the second thing that I tell myself is that stock investing is all relative to opportunity cost, uh, specifically interest rates. Okay. When you finally understand that piece that, that you're comparing at time now, you're constantly comparing what you own to or your, the capital that you have to what you could buy here versus over here. When you understand that it's all about time now and the, and the opportunity cost to switch into a different asset, that's when you finally understand that you'll be on the right side of the wealth equation as opposed to being on the wrong side of the wealth equation. So, Kaylin, it has been just a blast having you on the show. I'm sure everyone in the audience really appreciates your questions because these were just fantastic questions. Um, and what we're going to do right now is we're going to transition into one of the questions from one of our audience members that submitted it to our website. And this question comes from Scott Correa from New York, New York. And here's Scott's question. Hello, Stig and Preston. This is Scott Correa from New York City. So this question may invoke being kind of lazy, but what do you think about simply looking at the stocks that Berkshire Hathaway purchases and buying the same stocks for the same or a lower price? And a related question would be, what about buying the shares of Berkshire Hathaway, uh, just buying the shares of Berkshire Hathaway? Because wouldn't, be that, wouldn't that be getting the results of their research and judgment um, without having to do a lot of work? So uh like to know your opinions on this. Thank you very much. Fantastic question. I actually like to start out my answer with a quote. It's from uh, Mr. Warren Buffett himself. He's saying that I don't look to jump over seven foot bars. I look around for one foot bars that I can step over. Um, I'm not necessarily saying that the strategy you are pursuing is the best strategy, but I'm definitely saying that if you can find a good strategy for yourself, um, there's not necess necessarily anything wrong with you not spending two, three, or four hours every day on your stock picks. If you can find a, an, a profitable strategy for you that works, um, then I definitely think you should do it, even though you only need to spend like 10 minutes a year to, to um, carry that out. But anyway, um, I was thinking about the same thing when I started investing, because I was just looking up uh, the incident, I think, with the most profitable stock investor over time and I just found Warren Buffett and I saw that he was disclosing all his stock purchases so I thought I should probably do the same thing well the problem with that approach is um, and not saying that you shouldn't uh, shouldn't do it but the problem is that you are not really getting the benefit from Warren Buffett or at least not the full benefit because Warren Buffett um, he has the ability or he has the option to buy until uh, unlisted stocks and you probably won't have that uh, as an investor so for instance when he bought Heinz um, you could do that and yet it wasn't listed so you couldn't do the, the same thing so um, I don't know Preston if you have anything you want to to add 
So, Scott, I'm going to say, you know, Leonardo da Vinci says that simplicity is the ultimate sophistication. And your question kind of reminds me of that because you're like, well, why would I try to mimic Buffett if he's already getting these fantastic returns? And, you know, there's there's something to be said for that. Do I own uh, stock in Berkshire Hathaway? Absolutely. But let me say this. I buy Berkshire Hathaway at times whenever it's most opportune based off the value at that specific point in time. So a lot of people know that Buffett owns Coca-Cola. So do I just go out and buy Coca-Cola because Buffett owns it? Well, the answer is no. And the reason why I don't buy Coca-Cola right now is because Coca-Cola is at a completely different price point and completely different valuation than whenever Warren Buffett purchased it two decades ago. Okay, whenever Buffett purchased Coca-Cola, it was at a completely different price point, giving him a completely different yield. And right now, Buffett's held it for so long that his capital gains are in the billions for Coca-Cola. So is he going to sell that and take that enormous capital gains tax by selling Coke? Or is he going to continue to hold it and get that uh, dividend that he locked in whenever he purchased it two decades ago? Of course, he's going to take the latter. He's going to continue to hold it and he's going to continue to get those dividends. So like I was telling you earlier in, in my guidance to myself, uh, if I could go back in time, is your investing is relative to time now. Okay, What opportunities are there right now that you can go out and capitalize on versus just mimicking or imitating somebody else's decisions that maybe they made five years ago? And that's really kind of gets to the root of do I can I just buy Berkshire Hathaway? Absolutely, you can. But you have to make sure that you're buying it at the right time when it's giving you a good price and a good value. I must say that one thing that uh, I'd like to do, at least when I started out, was to use Warren Buffett's stock picks as a as a hint to where I should start my research. Uh, I think that's another takeaway. I would take a brief look at the stock picks, and then I would go and look deeper into the best picks, uh, picks that I really under, understood myself, and where I w- my old calculation would say that it's that it's undervalued. Okay, so that wraps up our show for today. I'd like to uh, tell everybody that Kalen Yablonski's uh, business that he has, he's the president of Inbound Interactive, fantastic uh, company for search engine optimization. So if you're looking to drive traffic to your website that's uh, optimized, that you don't have to pay for uh, advertising down the road with advertising dollars on Google AdSense or something like that, I highly recommend that you go to uh, Kalen's website. We'll have a link to his uh, company, Inbound Interactive, on our show notes if you're interested in doing that. And uh, Kalen, thank you so much for coming on the show today and asking such uh, fantastic questions. Yes, thanks a lot, guys. I really appreciate the opportunity. It was fantastic. And I look forward to hearing more from the Investors Podcast. All right, Kalen. All right, folks, we'll see you next week. And thanks for joining us. Thanks for listening to The Investor's Podcast. To listen to more shows or access to the tools discussed on the show, be sure to visit www.theinvestorspodcast.com. Submit your questions or request a guest appearance to The Investor's Podcast by going to www.asktheinvestors.com. If your question is answered during the show, you will receive a free autographed copy of the Warren Buffett Accounting Book. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only. This material is copyrighted by the TIP Network and must have written approval before commercial application. 